terrorists are giving the world a lot of different looks lately. The terrorist business model has changed, whether it's Islamic extremism or whether it's white nationalist extremism. Douglas Wise served 30 years almost in the CIA's clandestine service and has a deep background in counterterrorism issues as he was a senior leader in the counterterrorism center there. Uh, Back in the old days, terrorism was quite hierarchical. And so the leadership of that terrorist organization, in the case of al-Qaeda, obviously bin Laden. Uh, In the case of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. The leader actually identified opportunities and asked operatives to undertake those opportunities, offered permission, and in many cases offered resources. Then uh, we found that the terrorism business model actually evolved and became more subtle, more difficult to find, and less structured, where lone operatives in the the common parlance called the the lone wolf terrorist, uh, New Zealand uh, is a perfectly good example, San Bernardino is another good example, Orlando is yet another third example, and there's probably hundreds of them, where These are loan operators that are now not acting on the orders of a senior terrorist leader, but are acting under the inspiration of those terrorist leaders. So it seems that what Wise is saying is a lot of terrorists today are operating out on their own, and they're doing it kind of on autopilot. So there's not as much signature from the interaction from subordinate to senior, senior to subordinate in the terrorist realm. And so this, the, the, the onset of an operation, the emergence of a threat, uh, becomes quite subtle indeed and offers a significant challenge for uh, not only our own security services, but the security services of our allies and partners. And as Wise pointed out, the New Zealand situation, which featured a, a man who professed an affinity for white supremacist ideology, went out and killed 50 people and he live-streamed a good portion of it on Facebook. And talking with Bruce Alexander, president of Security One Solutions, it's simply hard to get your mind around what happened. At its most extreme, it's obviously you know a manifestation in the most violent form of, of the opposition to uh, immigration and uh, a reinforcement of this uh, notion of uh, white supremacy in this particular uh, instance. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not surprised that this is the type of action that it's come to. We saw similar instances with the Tree of Life, a very similar profile. And so I'm not surprised that someone of this bent would choose to express themselves in the most heinous and violent of ways, um, which maybe is is most telling that uh, we're no longer surprised by such types of actions. Bruce, what do you think is behind what appears to be an increase or rise in the number of cases like this. I certainly know that having spoken with folks from the FBI here and in uh, security circles from other nations, they are very much concerned about the rise of this kind of um, terrorism, essentially what's called domestic terrorism involving uh, uh, race-based concerns and race let me put it this this way. They're concerned about people who are avowed racists rising up and launching attacks like this. Absolutely, um, JJ. And um, I, I think to answer your question is what's behind this and what drives it, 
it's a complicated issue, obviously. On the surface, we look at this and we say, well, obviously, this is, you know, somebody who's mentally insane. But when you start to peel back the layers of the onion, you, you realize that a number of in issues come together here. Uh, one of the things most notably that we're seeing as a constant hallmark in these attacks is either the use of online media or online sources to either give rise to, in this case, extremism and in other instances, radicalism. But the other thing that we're seeing too is, is that the technology, which is so readily available to all of us, provides an instant platform. It makes an instant celebrity of the worst kind, if you will, of someone who tries to carry these, these attacks out. And in this case, I have to ask myself, look, unlike somebody who is in, in, engaged or intent on, on committing suicide after they do this, the last few acts, the individuals have survived and intended, indeed, in several instances, sought to escape. So it suggests to me that what they're trying to do is highlight their own persona to perhaps even more so than the very causes of hatred that they espouse. That, to me, is what the troubling factor is, is because we're seeing the aftermath of this, the difficulty in taking down this kind of uh, online uh, videos once they get out there, which is continuing to perpetuate the, both the damage and reinforce the message. The other thing is, is that in doing so, that clearly, you know, there are casual observers, uh, again, bent, who want to see these kinds of things, but it is also planting the seeds for the next attacker from tomorrow that says, that could be me, that could exemplify me as an individual. And Alexander is saying people who aspire to be terrorists for whatever reason have used the tactics that they've seen others use and have seen themselves in that position. And it's it's important to remember most of these tactics and most of the legwork was done by organized terror organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And we wanted to know what the status of these organizations is. Tricia Bacon, who worked at the State Department for nearly a decade on counterterrorism issues, is an assistant professor at the American University's School of Public Affairs. She's also the author of Why Terrorist Organizations form international alliances. And she says there's a fundamental difference between ISIS and al-Qaeda. It's, it's almost the quantity over quality issue. And the Islamic State for a long time was really good at attracting quantity. It was able to attract a lot of people, including perhaps some that were not of the, the level of, of quality that we've seen. And that was one of the comparisons we would make between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, that al-Qaeda was a, was a much smaller organization, but a very high quality one. And the Islamic State was a much bigger tent, if you will, and maybe some of the quality of its fighters weren't as good. But what we're seeing now is when you bring it down to its harder core, those who were willing to stay and keep fighting or those who are willing to support the group, you do have the diehards, you do have a higher level of quality. And so the, it shifts how the threat um, proposes and how it, how it manifests itself. But I'm not sure that it's necessarily less dangerous in that way, um, because you have a higher level of commitment from the people who are remaining. One of the things we've talked about in the past is the U.S. had trouble with its counter-messaging. Where does yeah. that stand these days? This does not seem to have been a major effort by the United States, at least that I'm aware of, 
in response to recent events. It's um, we haven't really seen a concerted U.S. campaign to really capitalize on the Islamic State's losses and really exploit them from a messaging standpoint. Um, that may just not be where this administration is putting a lot of its efforts. There is still a, a counter messaging entity and center within the State Department, but it's got a much broader mission now that includes Russia and Iran and some other things. So it may be that they're not as tightly focused on the Islamic State because they have this much broader mission. So it doesn't seem like the United States is really undertaking a major effort against this on the messaging front. And a part of that could be because it's too difficult to stay focused on what terrorists are doing because they continue to change their tactics. Douglas Wise, again. Well, I think uh, the tactics have actually become less less complicated. I mean, if you compare any of the terrorist attacks uh, subsequent to 9-11, they've all been exceptionally simple in comparison. I'm not saying they weren't uh, lethal and tragic, you know, in their own scale. But the fact of the matter is that the, the 9-11 operation was uh, quite complicated. And if you look at uh, any of the lone wolf attacks that you and I just discussed. They're quite simple indeed. It was just a little bit of targeting, a little bit of insider knowledge, and and an opportunity, and a a capability. And so there wasn't the complexity that we normally associate with traditional terrorist attacks, which back in the old days, you know, when we were looking for these, for either the onset of a threat or the aftermath of a threat, uh, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. And now it's like looking for a needle in a stack of needles. The signatures are much more subtle, again, because the operations have become a lot more simple. Needle in a stack of needles, I've heard that as well, but perhaps not as eloquently as you put it in the context of of your statements. And, uh, you know, so I suppose the question I would ask you now is, um, where where do you go uh, to, how do you stay in front of this phenom, this phenomenon, because, you know, people are getting all sorts of uh, ideas from from social media and from other people. You know, there are a number of different types of apps that people can use that are completely encrypted. And the intelligence and security people I speak to say, you know, they really don't have a solution to that yet. What's what's your suggestion for how to deal with that? Well, it, uh, well, as you so eloquently pointed out, the, the, the challenges are daunting in, in the modern terrorist business model. Uh, I'm certainly not an advocate for ubiquitous and bulk surveillance by any uh, security services. But again, going back to the needle in a stack of needles, I mean, the signatures are quite subtle. Uh, you have to take massive amounts of data to tease out some of those signatures, and you need quite sophisticated tools and a talented workforce. I think equally important, in spite of that, I I think it's almost impossible to deal with these very impulsive, very simple, but still very violent and tragic attacks. New Zealand's a perfectly good example. But I have to believe that somebody, some associate of that murderer in New Zealand had some sense that this guy was capable of that kind of violence. Now, whether his white nationalist confidants and associates would be willing to report his the potential to the security services might be uh, might not be possible. But the fact of the matter is that I think that the that the diaspora uh, in various locations where you know these terrorist 
you know, have grown up where they live, where they operate, where they plan, where they consort with fellows, where they share ideas. Uh, I think it's the diaspora, ir- irrespective of the ethnicity of the diaspora. Uh, I think it's the, it's the communities that actually will uh, be the solution to this problem and provide the greatest contribution to our ability to identify the possibility of these threats and, and to perhaps maybe prevent them. I think you're right about that. And I think that the United States has a history of seeing groups as prematurely defeated, if we even think back to the Taliban or the Islamic State in its previous iterations. And there's some concern about that with al-Qaeda now as well, that weakened organizations can rejuvenate, they can rebuild. And if they get enough space and and time and resources and air to do so, they, they have actually, some of them have tremendous capabilities to return. And I think the Islamic State has demonstrated that. I mean, it is the, the third iteration, the fourth iteration of an organization organization. So I think in particular, it has demonstrated that if you give it some space, it can find a way to rebuild. I think the move to put Hamza, Hamza bin Laden towards the forefront is a strategically smart move. Um, it has the the benefits of, of course, the, the legacy of his father, Osama bin Laden. It's a younger face on the organization. And I think there's a realization within uh, al-Qaeda that Zawahiri may not live forever. And so there has to be sort of a clear successor, which there really hasn't been for the last couple of years. So I think that's part that shows part of how al-Qaeda is strategically intelligent and it thinks about the future. And it, it really sees a much longer term than a lot of other terrorist organizations. So I think that that reflects sort of its strategic thinking. In general, I think that al-Qaeda has probably benefited from the focus being on the Islamic State for the past few years. We've had almost sort of a a back and forth since 9-11 of focusing on al-Qaeda, then al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then al-Qaeda and then the Islamic State. And so each group benefits when the focus sort of shifts away from them. Having said that, I think al-Qaeda's strength is still really through its affiliates. Its affiliates are are still fairly loyal, fairly strong, robust in sort of their regional um, areas. And so I think most of its strength still comes from its affiliates. (laughs) 
I think AQAP, unfortunately, has benefited from the war in Yemen, in particular the focus on the Houthis and the Saudi campaign there. It's it's another sort of area where the second priority, in this case AQAP, is able to find the breathing room and the space to recruit, to expand, to develop its capability. And a lot of its focus has been, of course, local in the, the Yemen conflict in recent years, but it's an organization that has demonstrated a desire and a willingness to conduct regional and transnational attacks. So when it gets that kind of breathing room and it gets that kind of space to rebuild, it's something that the U.S. has to watch very carefully. So I agree with you that AQAP remains sort of at the forefront of al-Qaeda's transnational capability, and I think it's really benefited from the war in Yemen. I've been focusing a lot on trying to understand not just the foreign fighters who want to return home, but the foreign fighters who don't want to return home and where they want to go and where they may end up. You know, are they going to end up in conflicts like Yemen and Afghanistan, Somalia? Because, of course, there's a, a rich legacy of foreign fighters who fight in one conflict going to another one and really being able to um, radicalize and bring new capabilities to those kinds of insurgencies. So I'm actually not as focused as a lot of people, I think, on the people who want to return home. I think that's a serious policy question, but I'm focusing on those who are who are appearing in Afghanistan or those who may be trying to go into Libya. I'm worried about the next generation of foreign fighters who are joining other conflicts in particular. I think if you strip them from their citizenship, you're almost guaranteeing that they're going to do that in the absence of options. They're going to join other organizations. They're going to join other conflicts. So essentially, you're you're inadvertently, in trying to keep the threat out of your own country, you're perpetuating it over the long term. And in the United States in particular, we've put so much effort into our justice system since 9-11. This seems very much like a problem our justice system should be able to deal with without stripping people of citizenship, which essentially just pushes the problem somewhere else and makes it possible over the long term that it will return to the United States in a different form. I think in the United States, we have a difficult domestic terrorism situation in that we have a lot of concern and focus on, on ISIS and the remnants of al-Qaeda, and those are have and have been threats for quite a while. And then we have our own domestic extremism problem, too, that's really emerged as almost on par domestically with the, the, some of the Islamic extremist groups. And that's a very different kind of threat for us to be dealing with, especially because it comes from within and that kind of from our within our own sort of political um, dynamics. And so I think we're in a difficult situation 
situation in dealing with those kinds of threats in particular because it bumps up against a lot of the other values that we hold about freedom of speech and and those freedom of religion, those kinds of issues as well. So I think, interestingly, a lot of our threat is really inside the United States, but we're having a hard time grappling with it.